Welcome to Behavior Babes Podcast, presented by me, Dr. Amanda Kelly. Aloha. Joining us today, we have Dr. Lori McClay. Hi, Lori. How are you today? Hi, I'm great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Excited to have you here. Why don't we have you start by giving introduction for our listeners? Great, thanks. Thank you very much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be able to talk to you and to share a little bit of information about the research that we're doing. I'm obviously Laurie McClay. I'm an associate professor at the University of Canterbury. I'm in the School of Health Sciences. And part of my role there, I am coordinator of a program called the Postgraduate Diploma in Specialist Teaching, which is a program for registered teachers who want to go and work in an area of more specialist education, so things like early intervention. And as well, my research area is around the assessment and treatment of sleep problems in children with developmental disabilities. So prior to coming to work at the University of Canterbury, I worked with children and adolescents with autism here in New Zealand and in Australia and then also spent 18 months in the US working in the home with families and one-on-one with children and then also working in schools and early childhood contexts as well. Yeah, and so here at the University of Canterbury, obviously I teach on the postgraduate diploma in specialist teaching, but we also have a clinic set up where we work with children and families throughout New Zealand who have developmental disabilities and sleep problems so as part of that project we have two arms set up um, that are funded by external research grants the first project looks at the use of functional behavioral assessment based interventions for sleep problems in children and adolescents uh, with autism and then the second project which is also externally funded looks at the use of function based interventions for children and adolescents with rare genetic developmental disabilities. So I lead those projects along with Associate Professor Karen France and Professor Neville Blampied, who are also members of faculty at the University of Canterbury. And we have a number of master's and PhD students who we work with as well, who are doing research in this area, and psychologists and intern psychologists and research assistants. So there's quite a big team of us here working on this research. That's fantastic to have such a team. And I imagine things have been impacted right now with the COVID situation and COVID crisis, but in general, just really nice to have a team. And you've mentioned that you have worked in Australia, New Zealand, and the U.S. What part of the U.S. and when did you work there? Um, takes me back a little bit. It was probably about, about 10, 10 to 12 years ago that I worked um, in the U.S. I worked California for a company called Autism Partnership. So we were based in Huntington Beach, but our office was in Seal Beach in California. And so I worked for that agency and then I worked with children and families under the supervision of that agency in New Zealand and in Australia. Fantastic. Well, let's talk more about the the work that you're doing now and the colleagues that you're working with, the sleep studies or a sleep clinic. What does that look like for a client or someone who's interested? Where do you get your referrals and, and what's the process for the families? We work, I mentioned we work with children and young people between two and 18 years of age. Most of our referrals come from service providers for children and families with developmental disabilities. We also receive referrals from 
healthcare professionals, so from paediatricians and general practitioners and things like that throughout the country, psychologists and speech language therapists and others who are becoming familiar with our work who work in child development services and things like that also make referrals to us directly. And then just through word of mouth, we also receive a number of parent um, self-referrals, so families who have contacted us through their connections with parent groups and things like that, who are interested in receiving services and being a part of the research project. So from the point that we receive a referral, we go through a screening process. So the criteria for being included in our research is that age range between 2 and 18, having a formal diagnosis of autism or a rare genetic developmental disorder. So when I'm referring to rare genetic developmental disorders, it's things like Rett syndrome or Angelman syndrome or Fragile X, things like that. So we receive those referrals, go through and have a screening phone call with each of the families assessing that criteria. The other thing we look at is making sure that there are no uh, medical conditions that might be interfering with the child's sleep or that make it might that may make it unsafe for us to implement an intervention. So sleep-related breathing problems or seizure activity that might contraindicate implementing a behavioural intervention or that we just have to factor in in our planning and in our assessment and treatment planning processes. From there, we, when we've received consent from the children and families and their parents, then we will do a more rigorous clinical interview and assessment. So we'll do a one-on-one interview with family and where possible include the child in that interview as well to gather a little bit more information from them about their sleep problems. We use a sleep assessment treatment tool which was developed by Greg Hanley and that's a really useful tool to inform the assessment of sleep problems. So the type of sleep problem, questions about the severity, um, the parents' goals for treatment, those kinds of things. And we also then at that point will ask parents to record one week of sleep diaries, at least one week, um, and some video recordings as well where possible. So we use those diaries to determine the type and severity of the sleep problem. So things like the setting of sleep onset, whether there are any daytime naps, the time that the child is put to bed, and then the time that the child actually fell asleep, what the child's doing during that sleep onset period, and how the parents might be responding to those behaviours, or what the child might be getting access to, the number of night wakings, and the timing of those awakenings, um, and then the length of those awakenings, and then once again, what is occurring while the child's awake, and how's um, the parent responding to those awakenings, and then the time of early morning waking. Um, And we use video data to look at some of those things as well, and that informs our functional assessment of the sleep problem. We also use video to check the accuracy of what's being uh, reported in the sleep diary, so we have that kind of, that triangulation of of data. Uh, It also helps us to better understand the extent of the sleep problem, because there are often times when we can't detect when the child's awake, so there might be unsignaled awakenings or awakenings when the child is actually lying there quietly, so it helps us to see those events as well that might not be able to be detected by parents. And then once we've finished that assessment process, then we meet as a team, so we have weekly meetings together, and we formulate the treatment plan, and then we feed that plan back to the parents 
and then from then it's implemented. And we usually work with the children and families until the sleep problem has resolved or until the parents' goals have been met. And then at that point we have about four to six weeks where we no longer have contact with the parents. And then we re-establish contact and ask for another week of diaries and video to check that the sleep problem has continued to, or that sleep the gains that were made have been maintained over time. And then we do that again um, about four, four months post-treatment. So that's kind of the, the general process in a nutshell. That was really wonderful, the summary that you were able to provide and the pictures that I was able to conjure up with the imagery that you gave. You mentioned involving the children in, their, in the assessment process as well as in the interventions. Can you speak to a little bit about what that might look like and how that might vary with different profiles? Yeah, so it's actually been a focus of one of my PhD students has been to look at ways of including adolescents within the assessment and treatment process. There's not a lot of literature in the area and so that's something that she was particularly interested in. So where possible um, in terms of assessment we try and conduct interviews either with parents and adolescents together or the adolescent on their own about to get their perspective on the sleep problem, why it's occurring, what's happening while they're awake, what are some of the things that they're thinking about. So just getting a better picture of some of the those sleep interfering behaviours from the perspective of that young person. That requires us often to adapt materials and things like that. So we'll use a lot of visual supports to kind of aid in children's responses. We also ask the children and young people to complete their own sleep diaries where they can. Usually if we do that, we ask the parents to record diaries as well so that we can at least initially check the accuracy of what's being reported and make sure that that's reliable. Um, so we, we do that as well. And then during the treatment process, we've been lucky enough over the past couple of years to have two members of our team. So if we're able to work with the adolescent as well, one member of my, our team will work with the parents and another member of the team will work directly with the young person themselves as well. Um, obviously, there's communication amongst everybody, but that, that's been sort of a helpful approach for us. Um, and... So we check in with the young person about the treatment strategies that we're suggesting, get their feedback on whether they feel that they're working and whether they've been able to implement those strategies. And we also get their feedback. So I mentioned we get the sleep diaries during assessment, but we get their feedback as we go throughout treatment as well in the form of sleep diaries, but also in the form of contact. So I mentioned that we have a member of the team usually who will try and work directly with the young person. And so they will check in with him or her each morning and just say, how did it go last night? What were some of the things that went well? What were some of the challenges? And get as much feedback as we can and make adaptations. And we've found really that unsurprisingly, having the young person's engagement and motivation has been really critical to addressing the sleep problem in these adolescents that we've been working with. Yes, I would imagine it really helps with the buy-in, right? To have their involvement and to and to feel valued as to what the process is. And, and often it's a criticism of psychology of behavior analysis where we're talking about individuals and not always talking to them. So really amazing to see that you guys are doing that. Really wonderful. And I'm excited to hear that also research is being conducted and it's being investigated and it's a part of 
as you were mentioning, one of your doctoral students' research. You had kind of quickly mentioned some of the things that can impact or what some of the variables that you look at for sleeping behaviors. Things like you said, I think the um, what time they're going to bed, how long they're staying in bed, whether they're staying awake, whether they're waking in the middle of the night. Could you delve deeper into some of those things that you're looking for and what those things tell you or how they inform your process? Yeah, so I guess the key things that we're looking at when we're gathering that information, in addition to conducting a functional assessment, is around what the period of sleep onset delay, so is that an age-appropriate period of time, so looking at whether the child is falling asleep typically within about 15 to 20 minutes after being put to bed, What yeah, what's the duration of the night wakings and what's the frequency of those night wakings and then what's the timing of the early morning waking. So... Once we've gathered all that information, there are sort of three key areas that we consider in our treatment planning processes. The first looks at circadian factors. So that's your sleep-wake cycle. And one of the things that we're really interested in is around whether the child is getting an age-appropriate amount of sleep as a starting point, whether the bedtime is an age-appropriate bedtime. So sometimes we'll see children who are being put to bed far earlier than you would expect another teenager to be put to bed. And then some of the consistencies around that as well. So is the child or young person going to bed at a consistent bedtime each night? And then are they being woken at a consistent time in the morning. Thinking about that in terms of on a daily basis is there consistency around that, but then also is there consistency between weekdays and weekends because often what we see is there is a lot of irregularity there where children on weekdays will be having to get up at seven and then on weekends start sleeping until nine and so there's a lot of inconsistency and that affects your circadian rhythms, your sleep-wake cycles. So those are the key things that we look at in that regard. Another thing that we talk about is sleep efficiency. So making sure, looking at the out of the time that the child is in bed, what percentage of time do they actually spend asleep? And it's really important that there is a high sleep efficiency. We don't want children and young people to be in bed for too long and be awake. So some of the, sometimes with some families we'll see that the child's going to bed at 7 and then they're getting up in the morning at 7. And there's an expectation that they're in bed for 12 hours, which is not something that you would typically expect anyone to do. And so looking at restricting that window and increasing sleep efficiency. The other thing that we look at are the antecedent variables that might be impacting sleep. So we've got the circadian. The second is the antecedent variables. And that's the environmental things that might be impacting on the child's sleep. So we're talking about things like sleep hygiene. So is there a consistent bedtime routine? Is the bedroom warm, dark, quiet, all of the things that might be conducive to sleep? One of the ways that I always think about that for myself, sometimes you don't really know what your own sleep cues are till you go and sleep in a bedroom that's not your own. So you sleep in a bedroom in a hotel or, you know, go and visit family. And I always find that my sleep is a lot worse. And I think it's because there's those... Um, this, the environment is different, so the things, the pillows are different, so it's not quite as comfortable as what you're used to. It might not be as dark, or it's not as noisy, or it's more noisy. So all of those things are things that you start to associate with sleep. And so we look at the consistency of those kinds of things and whether they're sleep conducive. We also look at some of the pre-bedtime activities and whether they might be result in physiological or psychological arousal. So things like iPad use 
before bedtime, whether there's too much physical activity before bedtime, those kinds of things. So what does that bedtime routine look like? And then the third area that we look at, consequence-based modifications that we might need to make. So what are some of the things that might be maintaining the sleep-interfering behaviours or the sleep problem? And that might be things like parent responses to the child when they call out from the bedroom or is the child getting access to preferred toys when they're in the bedroom or access to food and drink when they call out from the bedroom. All of those kinds of things that might be having an impact on the sleep interfering behaviour. Well, I know that was a tall order. I asked you to explain all of what you do and what your colleagues and you have studied in a very concise way. But I think that you did that. I think you did a really nice job of boiling it down and speaking in a language that, I mean, we all sleep or many of us struggle with sleep, we can definitely relate and connect to. Now, you had mentioned that there was two sort of population sets as well. You had talked about working with children and adolescents with autism spectrum disorders, as well as individuals who have other more severe medical, right, like fragile X and Angelman syndrome. Is there a mm -hmm. difference in the approach of assessment or in your approach of treatment between those populations? And if so, how would you describe that? Yeah, that's a, um, that's a really good question. We initially started doing this work with children with ASD, and then the reason we decided to um, expand the work that we were doing is because nobody has really looked at the use of behaviourally-based treatments for sleep problems in children with some of these rare genetic disorders. There's been a little bit, but not a lot. And so we wanted to look at the role of learning and behaviour and sleep problems for these children, knowing that based on the literature, there is also a clear kind of genetic and biological component around children's neurology and brain functioning and things like that. So in terms of our approach to assessment, we use the same kind of principles and procedures. So we still conduct functional assessment and things like that. But we have to be very careful with some of the children that we're working with who have rare genetic disorders. We have to be extra careful, I would say, around doing much more assessment in terms of safety of the interventions. So there is a lot more medical, often a lot more medical complexity to consider. So there might be higher rates of seizure activity and in particular nocturnal seizure activity that we have to explore. Rates of sleep apnea or sleep-related breathing problems that can interfere with sleep are really important to consider as well. There are also just higher rates of illness. So the children, and I'm speaking from experience here, the children that we've been working with with rare genetic disorders get sick a lot more. And when children are sick, we ask the parents to stop implementing the intervention. So there are, yeah, I, I would say it's more challenging in that regard because there are more disruptions often to the intervention process so there's a lot more careful assessment around that and saying that in spite of some of those challenges we've seen some really great progress in terms of improving sleep in this population so just through some quite simple procedures modifications to sleep wake times and modifications to environmental factors that seem to be interfering with sleep we've been able to see great reductions in sleep problems and that's so that's been really interesting for us I would certainly say that the interventions have been much longer and at times more challenging and more complex but still nonetheless implementing these behavioral interventions has seems to be very effective challenging complex and yet effective okay good <laughs> thank you to you and your colleagues for that increased response effort 
And yeah, I mean, I would imagine that the principles and many of the procedures would be the same, but I appreciate you sharing some of those differences and the motivation behind trying to capture the effects for this population. Speaking of sleep, which is what we've been talking about today, my sleep has been very impacted and changed and disrupted during the period of quarantine. And I feel like that is oscillated or it's gone up and down. I've had times where things seem to be going good and in a good groove. And then the next day completely feels like a different situation. I'm sure that's happening for the families and for the clients or the, or the patients that you guys have been working with. How has COVID impacted your research and the study that you're doing is definitely one question. And what advice do you have for families just in general during this time? Thanks. Um, so for the majority, actually, the majority of the families that we've worked with, we actually got back in contact with them to check whether they wanted to proceed with the study under the current circumstances. And most people were very happy to continue in spite of the highly challenging environment in which we're living at the moment, as you point out. Children reporting feeling more anxious around bedtime. There's a lot of changes in people's routines, so what we're seeing is less consistency around some of those bedtime um, routines, less consistency around bedtimes um, and wake times, so there's obviously without people having to rush out the door um, to go to school and work and things like that, children are being able to sleep in a little bit more or go to bed a little bit later and so there's less consistency around those types of things more sleep-wake schedule type changes also increases around things like screen time which can be quite sleep interfering so more screen time throughout the day but also before bedtime and that can be interfering with um, children and young people's sleep as well and then the other thing that sort of can change for people around these times is around um, co-sleeping or, or bed sharing. So um, I think as an act of trying to reassure children, parents are maybe more inclined to lie down with their child while they're trying to get to sleep or to um, sleep with them throughout the night. They might be more responsive to curtain calls as well. So we refer to them as curtain calls, but what I'm talking about is when children call out from the bedroom, they might parents might be more inclined to respond to that than they would have been previously given the context in which we're in at the moment. Um, so all of those types of things are things, uh, aspects that may affect sleep where we've seen some change as a result of COVID and the lockdown and things like that. So not trying to put you on the spot and certainly we don't want to come across as uh, judgmental at all. What advice do you have for families right now? You know, should they be keeping or trying to keep a semblance of that sleep routine or if they are going to change it, should they start a new routine and keep consistency? Any sort of general tips or suggestions? So I think it links back to those three areas that I was talking to you about that we sort of consider around the sleep-wake schedules, the sleep hygiene factors and antecedent variables, and then the consequence-based things as well. So in terms of circadian factors, where possible, and as you say, without sounding like there's any judgment, because it's such a difficult time and we're all adapting at the moment to new routines and things like that, but trying to maintain consistent bedtime and wake times. 
if possible, maintaining the bed times and wake times that you had prior to COVID-19, but if not possible, then at least trying to be consistent across the bedtime throughout the week and then the wake time throughout the week as well. I think there's a tendency at this time for adolescents in particular who are able to self-determine often their bedtimes. There's more risk, I think, there that those sleep-wake times are going to go out the window and that might interfere ultimately impact on the amount of sleep that young people are getting. So those are sort of the key things. And you can think about what's very easy to find guidelines around what's an age-appropriate amount of sleep. So um, be using that as a bit of a guide in terms of what time should my child be going to bed, what time should they be waking in the morning, and what how does that equate to kind of what's an age-appropriate amount of sleep time. The other thing which I mentioned is around antecedent variables and sleep hygiene factors. So trying to keep as consistent a bedtime routine as possible and a consistent sleep setting. So that's another thing I think where there can be a little bit more flexibility around times um, at times like this. But it's really important to try and keep that consistent. Um, so maintaining the child sleeping in their own bed in their own bedroom um, keeping the same consistent bedtime routine so um, brushing their teeth <laughs> putting their pajamas on and then having a bedtime story before going to bed I think as well in terms of adolescence I know that it's really important to talk to your children around at this time but I would advise avoiding having those conversations when your child is either just about to go to bed or whether they're in bed. I know that can be tricky because that's sort of the calm, quiet time of the day where maybe that opportunity arises, but it can result in arousal, which is going to interfere with sleep. So try try and have those conversations earlier in the day if you can. I would also, just around regulating device use, so um, avoid the child having access to devices at least one or two hours before bedtime so call it a digital curfew um, having that in place because we know that the blue light that's emitted from digital devices can have an impact on uh, on children's sleep and then also just making sure that they don't have access to those devices and cell phones and things like that in the bedroom yeah and then I think where possible, I, I know it's hard not to respond to your children when they're calling out or if they seem distressed, but just really minimising um, the attention that's provided during those times, um, trying not to do things that are going to make it difficult to revert back to kind of what you were doing pre-COVID and then hope to resume um, post-COVID. So be thinking about, yeah, just just minimising the amount of reinforcement that is provided for some of those sleep-interfering behaviours. So going in, quickly resettling your child and then, and then leaving the room as quickly as you can. Yeah, those will probably be, I think, my, my key tips around responses during this time. As I said, I know it's really is a, a difficult time and the tendency as a parent is to be overly responsive, but we don't want to, I guess, fall into traps that are going to make it difficult to resume normal sleep-wake schedules and sleep behaviours, sleep-related behaviours post-COVID. So maybe just have that in the back of your mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, very practical information. And again, to our listeners, take what is relevant to you and what you feel like you can run with. And if something doesn't feel applicable, then it doesn't feel applicable. I know for myself, I was listening to you and I was thinking it would be really helpful if somebody could come take away my phone 
two hours before bedtime, I'm much you know, better at giving that advice and structuring a team of support than I am at uh, self-monitoring and self-implementing. So I guess on a personally selfish level, any advice for people who don't have anyone else to help monitor or manage? Like, what what would you say to your your spouse? Maybe if 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 they were traveling or stuff, you know, some of the same things apply. But I guess I'm speaking specifically during during COVID, where a lot of people are reporting disruption in their sleep cycles. Mm-hmm. Um, do you know probably the same sorts of principles apply? I know it's really tricky, but um, setting a digital curfew yourself not falling asleep while you're watching something on your laptop or on your phone or while you're texting so one of the things that we often think about is making sure that the conditions under which you fall asleep we talk to parents about this quite a lot making sure that the conditions under which you fall asleep at the beginning of the night are the same as the conditions when you wake in the middle of the night so think about it in relation to children if they're falling asleep with a parent present or if they're falling asleep while watching their ipad that's how they learn to fall asleep those are the conditions under which they learn to fall asleep they wake up in the night and mum's not there or the ipad's not there or the conditions have changed um, it's really difficult for them to be able to resettle independently so that's kind of one of the key things that we I, i would think about in that regard Funny you should mention my husband because it's something I always talk about with him because he always falls asleep watching his iPad and then he wakes from the night and he's like, I can't get back to sleep and he ends up putting the iPad on until he falls back to sleep. And so for, from my point of view, he's started to associate um, sleep onset with the iPad and he struggles to fall asleep in the absence of that. So um, just some things to think about in terms of what are the conditions under which you fall asleep and how to make sure that that's consistent throughout the night. And then, yeah, I hate to say it because I know it's really tricky, but trying not to um, access devices too close to the time that you actually go to bed. Yeah, and probably setting a bedtime, right, would be a really good start. (laughs) (laughs) But we covered that. We covered that. Uh, I really appreciate the rule that you just stated, which is try to create the conditions that are going to be the same when you're going to bed in the middle of the night if you wake back up. And and sort of like what environment do you want to wake up in as well, right? You want the hum of the TV or the buzz of the light or your phone right next to you. I mean – it's yeah. a it's a good question, and it's something that I can give some thought to for myself, and might be a little bit more. I'm I might be more receptive to it than you know. Just put your phone away, Amanda. It seems really like who who are you? I say to myself to tell me what to do, but if I say what conditions do you want to fall asleep in, it feels something that actually I'm much more receptive to. So just just a little bit of oversharing with people on how I perceive the words that I say to myself, but. That reframing can be really helpful, really helpful. Lori, I want to thank you for all of the knowledge and the information and the time that you've spent, you know, sharing this with everybody. And before we end the podcast episode, I want to give you an opportunity to just add any last pieces of advice or thoughts or to give a shout out or share any information or research that you'd like. Um, I don't think I have a huge amount to add. I think probably, um, just reflecting on our conversation, the key theme that comes through is around consistency 
So just making sure that whatever bedtime and wake time you choose, that you're consistent around that. Whatever the pre-bedtime routine is, making sure that that's consistent. Whatever the conditions are when you fall asleep, make sure they're consistent to the conditions that you're exposed to throughout the night. So those are probably the key things. Um, probably my only other take-home message would be do think about your sleep as being a really central part of your overall well-being. I know um, there are so many sort of public health messages and campaigns around the importance of um, diet and exercise and there is so much less about sleep and yet we know that there are such strong links between sleep and some of our um, physical and mental health outcomes. So do be thinking about about that in terms of the bigger picture, bigger, um, I guess, when you're thinking about your personal well-being at this time. It's really critical. I would agree. And I would say that one of the highlights, and, um, you know, I'm not sure that we're all prepared to think of the silver linings just yet, but has been some time to pause and think about what's really important. I was telling a friend of mine, I was like, well, I'm not e obviously eating out. I'm eating at home. And one of my friends says, I didn't know you could cook. I'm like, huh, look at this. And I was like, you know, cooking takes up a lot of time, which to me was something that I saw as aversive before or competing. And now I have the time. And actually, I recently made something like a, just like a, a chicken nuggets or something like that. And I thought, oh, this is bland and flavorless. And so it's shifted my perspective of food and so maybe my next 30-day challenge is what I like to call these months on on shutdown <laughs> they're like forced 30-day challenges at a time so maybe my next 30-day challenge and maybe I'll challenge everybody else listening would be to target their sleep so we have some tools now to equip us with that I want to thank you again for joining me and for sharing your information your knowledge and your time and I want to inform everybody that Collectively, we're going to try to put some of the information and some of the research and some of the links that maybe you have for people on a landing page at BehaviorBabe.com. So if you wouldn't mind, I'd be excited to generate more information for others out there in the field and beyond. What do you say? Fantastic. Yep, that sounds great. If there's anything um, that I can share with you, I'm very, very happy to. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, for that information and more, people can check it out by going to www.behaviorbabe.com.